I just want everyone to notice how heavy this looks. And I just carried it all the way from there to here. So I've been going to the Y. But it's like solid all the way through. But I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church this morning. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us. Uh, first things first, I do want to thank Joshua for preaching last week. He did a really great job. And it's always good and it's always a luxury for me to kind of have a week off uh, just to focus on some different things around here at church, focus on some things personally. And he did a really, really great job looking at our second value, which is the Bible is our authority for teaching and practice. I also want to thank Joel for leading worship. We have the fan club here in the first row. Uh, Joshua said that he likes having people in the first row. I don't uh, because you're going to get spit on, but that's all right. So, but we are thankful to Joel for coming here and leading worship this morning. Now, we've been in our direction series looking at mission, vision, and values. And the reason we went with this theme of direction is because these statements, mission, vision, values, these things we've been talking about, they serve as road signs to help us make sure we're staying on track, to help us make sure that we're continually focused on the destination that God is calling us to. And if we don't have mission and vision and values, and we don't make these things clear, if we don't set these things out there for everyone to see, for everyone to know, to make sure we all understand it, then we might be tempted to go the wrong way. We might be tempted to be distracted. We might be tempted to take a wrong turn and actually not arrive at the destination that we believe God has called us to. Now, that destination is our mission. We've talked about that already, and that is making devoted, maturing, and multiplying followers of Jesus. You may have seen that slowly but surely creeping its way into different areas of Prairie View. Maybe one week you see it on the website, and then maybe you see it plastered on a wall, and then all of a sudden it's on a connection card or whatever. But you've seen this over and over. It's slowly being rolled out because we believe that's the destination. That's the place that God is calling us to as a church to make devoted, maturing and multiplying followers of Jesus. That's the end goal. We've talked about vision, the things that we believe God is calling us to do in order to reach that end goal. And that vision was simply teaching the Bible, living in unity, loving our neighbors, equipping one another for ministry and sharing our hope. We believe these things are absolutely essential if we're going to make devoted and maturing and multiplying followers of Jesus. And then we got to values, the things that simply matter around here. And that's where we are today. The first week was honoring God, that everything we do here as a church Every dollar that is spent, every minute that is invested, every volunteer that is recruited, it's all done for the sake of honoring God. And if there's any other motivation that we have, if there's any other reason that we're doing this thing, then we really need to step back and re-examine our primary motivation in the first place. Honoring God comes first. The second one that Joshua covered is the Bible is our authority for teaching and practice. It's not about opinions. It's not about self-help. It's about scripture. There are other things that we use to help us make decisions. Of course, there's common sense, there's reason, there's experience. But when it's all said and done, scripture is the authority. That's the way it's going to be here at Prairie View. That's the way it has been and will continue to be here at Prairie View. 
And that brings us to where we are today. The third value is that all people are valuable in God's eyes. Every single person is valuable in God's eyes. And as we look at this idea of valuing all people, there's no better place to look than Jesus himself. So today we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, looking at three different stories where Jesus shows value to people who no one else probably showed value to. We're going to look at three main contexts. The first context is a meal. The second context is a conversation. And the third context is a healing. And Jesus shows that people around us, every single person, has inherent God-given worth. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Luke chapter 5. We're going to jump around in Luke to three different main passages, but the first one is Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of the ones under our chairs. If you don't own one, grab one from the welcome desk. We want you to take that home with you as a gift from us to you. We want you to have access to God's Word. But before we actually get into our text... I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. So if you would, pray with me. Father God, thank you for all that you've blessed us with as a church, all that you've blessed us with individually, all that you've blessed us with as families. And God, we are honored that we have your word. We are honored that we can open it and read it. We take that for granted. There are so many people who would give anything to have access to a Bible And here we are with a couple hundred probably in this building right now. God, I pray that we won't take that for granted. I pray that we'll enter into that, enter into your word with reverence and awe and humility and respect. And I pray that your word this morning will work on us. It will convict us. It will encourage us. It will challenge us. God, you know what needs to be done in each and every one of our hearts. And I pray that you will use your word to do that this morning. God, we love you. We honor you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 27. You can follow along with me. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Well, pretty early on in the story, we see something interesting happen. Jesus is walking along. He's already recruited some disciples, but he sees a guy named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And Jesus says, hey, Levi, follow me. As far as we know, they haven't met before. This is not like a gradual recruiting type thing. It's not like Jesus has over time invested in Levi and tried to earn credibility with Levi. Jesus just says, hey, Levi, up, follow me. Leave your profession. Become my disciple. And Levi says, well, okay, I'll follow you. Sure, sounds good. But then there's something interesting about Levi. Number one, Levi is a Jewish name. So we know the guy's Jewish. But then we also see that Luke says that Levi is a tax collector. Now, Luke is a skilled writer. He is an historian. He does not waste words. He does not include details that aren't important. And this detail about Levi being a tax collector, that's pretty important. You see, if Levi was Jewish, and if Levi was a tax collector, a lot of his fellow countrymen, a lot of his fellow Jews, would have viewed that as an incredibly huge conflict of interests. The whole point there is that Jewish people like Levi, who became tax collectors, 
they were working for the enemy. They were working for Rome. And Rome was the mean, oppressive, foreign power that had come in. And they were reigning over God's people, the Israelites, the people that should have all the honor and all the glory and all the respect of the nations around them. And yet Rome is ruling with an iron fist. Levi, this Jewish guy who's now working for the enemy, that is an incredibly huge conflict of interests. Levi shows that he is completely betraying his own heritage, his own tradition, his own nationality. He is betraying everything working for Rome. Now, not only that, Rome was often viewed as a complete slap in the face to Jewish heritage. They were just like Babylon, the nation that had taken over generations earlier. They were just like the other oppressive nations that always completely went against God. They were the competition. And so Levi is an absolute backstabber. Now, this idea, I came from a small town. This would have been similar to a guy who works for his dad's family pharmacy. And his destiny is to take over the family pharmacy, even though there are other bigger competitors. This is a family-owned small business, and the son's going to take over. But then the son leaves the family pharmacy, and he goes to work for the megastore pharmacy. The kind of betrayal, the kind of selling out that that son would have done for his father, this is what Levi is doing to his own people. He's constantly associating himself with Gentiles, People who don't know God, people who are not chosen by God, people who are not part of God's family. He is working with these people. But then on top of that, on a practical level, tax collectors, they were notorious for fraud. They were notorious for extortion, notorious for blackmail. Any other type of shady business practice you can possibly imagine, tax collectors knew it. They got it. They were good at it. And yet this is who Levi is. A sellout, a loser, a betrayer, a dirty businessman who would do anything he could, even betray his own countrymen for the sake of padding his own wallet. And yet Jesus calls him. Follow me. Come follow me. And Levi says, well, okay. No self-respecting Jewish religious leader would have ever called a guy like Levi to follow him. The worst of the worst. That already shows a little something about Jesus' view of people like Levi. But he goes even farther. Look at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. The only thing worse than one tax collector is like five tax collectors. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus already has called one tax collector to follow him. But now he has the nerve to go and have a meal with more than one of them. This guy and his shady friends, the sinful friends that make him a complete outcast to his own people. And Jesus has the nerve 
to sit down to a meal with them. Now, you know, in this time, a meal was an incredibly significant event. In our culture, I think we're probably all guilty of it, my family included, we probably have lost a little bit of reverence for the idea of meal because of drive throughs or busy schedules or whatever you want to call it. Meals don't really have that same weight that they used to, especially in this context. A meal is a big deal. A meal is a showing of friendship, a showing of acceptance, a showing of solidarity. And having a meal with someone in this culture would have been the equivalent of calling them your extended family member. A meal is no trivial thing. This is a huge deal that Jesus would ever stoop to this level to eat with those people. But Jesus does it. Now, thankfully, the Pharisees aren't going to put up with this. They're not okay with this. They're going to step in and speak some common sense into Jesus and remind him who he is. And if he wants to be a respectable religious leader, then he better get out of this group of people. But then look at what Jesus says to them. He says, guys, you don't get it. It's not the righteous that need me. It's the sinners. They're the ones who need to have a meal with me. Jesus does not treat these people as outcasts. He doesn't treat them as second-class citizens. He treats them as human beings. He doesn't treat them as projects that just need to be fixed. He treats them as real people created in God's image when none of the other religious leaders would have ever granted them that dignity. He's not above having a meal with anybody, even tax collectors and even sinners. Let's look at Luke chapter 7. We're going to see the second context here, just a couple pages over in your Bible. Luke chapter 7, we saw a meal. Now we're going to see a conversation that happens after a meal. So starting in verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for... She is a sinner. Wow. Big deal here. Jesus, again, is invited to a meal. He's sitting down with a Pharisee, and maybe they're having some nice discussion, some good-hearted religious debate about who God is and who Jesus truly was and what he had come to do. But then this woman comes in, and as you look at the phrase, woman of the city, not exactly the most endearing title, Is it woman of the city, a sinner, but she brings a jar of ointment in probably something that was pretty expensive for someone like her. And she anoints Jesus's feet. She wets his feet with her tears. She wipes his feet with her hair. Now, washing feet in this time and probably today still kind of comes across as gross, but washing feet in this time would have been the most humble act of service that you could possibly imagine. And that's with a towel. And that's with a basin of water. Much less with your own tears and your own hair. 
Yet this woman does it. Look at the humility this woman has. But again, the Pharisee comes to the rescue. He looks at the situation, he steps back, he analyzes things, and he says, okay, let me get this straight. Jesus says he's a prophet, all right? But prophets don't let sinful women of the city touch them or be in their presence or anoint them with ointment. Yet Jesus is letting this woman do those things. Therefore, two plus two is five. I don't think Jesus is a prophet. That's the conclusion that the Pharisee comes to. If Jesus is letting this woman do this, clearly he's not really a prophet. But Jesus picks up on this. He says, hey, Simon, I have a story for you. Simon says, okay. Well, Simon, there was a man who had a lot of money. And he lended some money to two guys. One guy took 500 denarii and another guy took 50. But this man who had the money, this investor, he goes to these two men and he says, Hey guys, you know, you owe me that money. You owe me 500. You owe me 50. It'd be great if I could have it back. But you know what? Don't worry about it. You don't owe me anything. We're even. We're good. Of course, the guys are probably rejoicing. They're probably extremely excited that they would be able to have their debt forgiven. That's a pretty big deal. But then Jesus says, now, Simon, you think about these two guys, which one would be more thankful? The one who owed 500 and had his debt forgiven or the one who owed 50? And Simon says, well, I think the guy who owed 500 might be a little bit more thankful And Jesus says, well, guess what, Simon? You're right. The guy who owes 500 is going to be more thankful than the guy who owes 50. Both have their debt forgiven, but one of their debt is bigger than the other. 50 is great. 500 is life-changing to have that forgiven. Pick back up in verse 44. We see the rest of the conversation from Jesus. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon... Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Yet again, Jesus sets a standard here of showing people value. The people that the self-righteous religious leaders thought were worthless, not worth their presence, not worth their time, the second-class citizens, Jesus looks at them and says, you know what? No, they're worth something. And in fact, this woman, she gets Jesus better than the religious leaders do. These guys who are supposedly so knowledgeable and so enlightened and so holy, they don't get it, but this woman does. This woman of the city, this sinful Woman who had no dignity and didn't deserve to be shown any dignity, she gets it. And Jesus treats her like a human. Jesus treats her like a person. 
Not just an animal, not just an outcast, not just a pest, not just a nuisance, but a human being created in God's image. That's how Jesus treats her. Is she sinful? You bet. Does she need to be forgiven? Absolutely. Does she have a debt that needs to be paid? Yes, she does. But Jesus is going to pay that debt for her on the cross with his blood, with his body. Is she sinful? Yes. Does she owe money? Yes. But God forgives debt of the people like this woman through the blood of Jesus. He's not above having meals with these people, tax collectors and sinners. He's not above letting this woman anoint his feet and wash his feet. And we're going to look at one final example, Luke chapter 17, a third example of how Jesus is not above healing anybody, even the most disgusting people. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. So Jesus and the disciples, one final story, they're going into town. They're passing through Samaria and Galilee, getting ready to go into Jerusalem. They've already had this episode with the tax collectors, this episode with the sinful woman. But now they're encountered with ten lepers. Now, when you see a leper in this day, here's what you do. You look ahead. You don't make eye contact. You maybe walk a little bit faster than you were before. You just pretend they aren't there. And yet Jesus does not seem to hold that out as an option. Now, these people were disgusting. They looked disgusting. They had a disease that made anyone around them unclean. If you touched them, you were unclean socially. You were unclean physically. You were unclean religiously. You absolutely were 100% through and through unclean if you touch these people or associate with these people. But then on top of that, there's that little backstory stigma that nobody's quite so sure about of, well, you know, as disgusting as these people are right now, I wonder what they did in their past to really bring this upon themselves. I wonder what kind of sin they wrestled with in the past that God would give them this horrible disease. They must have done something really bad back in the day that God would punish them like this. Yet Jesus does not just look ahead. He does not speed up. He does not just pretend they don't exist. He engages them. He maybe has the first conversation with them that they've had in quite some time. A lot of people, when they walk by, they don't acknowledge them. They don't make eye contact with the lepers. They don't understand or listen to what the lepers are saying. But Jesus does just that. He gives them these orders. Go to the priests. Heal on your way to the priests. And that exact thing happens. There was no one too messed up for Jesus to be treated as a human being. Tax collectors, sinful women, lepers, you name it. They all had one thing in common, and that thing is seen in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
every single one of these people was created in God's image. And no one could take that away from them. Their profession of being a tax collector didn't change that. The decisions they made being a woman in the city didn't change that. The disease that they had did not change that. They are created in God's image. And that's the same conclusion that we've come to here at Prairie View. Every single person has that dignity. Every single person is created in God's image. And when we understand that, when we take that seriously, that should change the way we view the people around us. You know, we may not look at tax collectors as second-class citizens. We may not look at women who live in the city as second-class citizens. We may not look at people who have horrible, debilitating diseases as second-class citizens. But there are people who we often devalue, if we're really honest with ourselves. Maybe it's the teenager working at the drive through window. We don't look up at them. We don't engage them. We don't make eye contact. All they are is a set of hands that takes my money and gives me food. That's what they are. They're not people. They're just like a function, essentially. Maybe it's the person in prison for the third or fourth or fifth time who seems completely beyond redemption, completely beyond rehabilitation. Do we devalue them? Because they're created in God's image. Maybe we devalue the woman standing in line in front of us with an incredibly nice purse, but paying for food with her EBT card. Maybe we devalue her. Maybe it's the high school dropout who still lives with mom and dad and will never make anything of themselves. Maybe it's the college guy wrestling with homosexuality or the college girl who's a little bit too promiscuous with all those guys in her dorm. Maybe it's the person who would even love to kill a Christian if they got the chance. The one thing all these people have in common, Genesis 127, created in God's image. Inherent worth, inherent value, deserving respect, deserving reverence, because they are created by God. And whether we realize it or not, all too often we are guilty of treating people as less than that. We are guilty of treating people as valuable only if we can get something out of them. Only if they have some good or some service that benefits us. And yet we are called to value all people. In his book, Becoming a Contagious Christian, Bill Hybels, who I don't normally like reading a lot of Bill Hybels, he had a great story in this book. And it starts out like this. There's a man who goes to the gym with Bill Hybels, a guy who is kind of an outcast, kind of weird, kind of creepy. He's just a different type of dude. But Bill Hybels took it upon himself to try and befriend this guy, try to show him some value, try to be kind to this man. And this is how the story goes. One day I went to the club after I'd been away on a speaking trip. As I was getting dressed to go running, this man came up to me with an anxious look on his face. He said, Mr. Bill, while you were gone, something terrible happened. My wife left me, and now I'm all alone. I just don't know what I'm going to do. While he was talking, I remembered that he had a small child. It was easy to see the pain that he was in, and I think I was the first person he had talked to about this. As he went on explaining what had happened, I looked into his eyes, and I sensed that the Holy Spirit was leading me to reach out and embrace this man. 
being the ever-obedient spiritual heavyweight that I am, I did what any serious-minded, devoted follower of Christ would do. I called one of those internal timeouts and said, Hold on a minute, Lord, let's not get carried away. I told God I had two basic problems with this leading. The first was that I'm not a naturally affectionate person, particularly with men. My second problem had to do with this man's religious orientation. I said, you are aware, Lord, that this fellow you want me to hug is more than merely a non-worshipper. He is actively worshiping the competition. As you could have predicted, I didn't get very far in reversing the counsels of the eternal, wise, all-knowing sovereign of the universe. Instead, I felt as though the Spirit was saying, I know all about it, Bill, but I want this man to know in the middle of his pain that he matters to the true God. I'm just looking for one of my children to communicate that to him. Will you do it for me? I've got to tell you, it was not an easy step for me. But when I put my arms around the guy, he just broke down and flooded my shoulders with his tears. It was clearly an important moment for him. Do you see what happened? When I realized how much God cared about this man, it made me care more about him too. Later on, I admitted to myself how often I, a Christian and a minister, had done the same ugly, unthinkable things the Pharisees had done. I realized that sometimes I carry around little unpublished lists of people who I don't think are very important. You know, the gas station attendant who pumps my gas, the waitress, the bellhop, the cashier, the guy driving the slow-moving car in front of me, the neighbor with the barking dog, the obnoxious, intoxicated person sitting next to me on a flight, the guy at work who doesn't view the world the same way I do. These people don't matter very much, right? The truth is, they do. They're important to God. Regardless of race, salary, gender, level of education, religious label, or lack thereof, they still matter to God, and therefore they better matter, really matter, to me. All people are created in God's image. People are not just commodities. They're not just things that offer us goods and services, and if their goods and services are great enough, then somehow then we value them. Then they're worth something. Then they matter. No, they matter, period. Because God created them. This includes the baby still in his mother's womb, and that includes the woman who's too old to feed herself anymore. Every single person matters to God. But not only does this change the way we view the people around us, this changes the way we view ourselves. This past week on Facebook, I saw a fellow Christian put something up. Sometimes I question my own self-worth. I question my own value. I get to where I am so down on myself. But then I remember that it's not up to me to decide my self-worth. It's up to God, and instantly I feel better. Let me tell you that if you are here, if you exist, you have been created by God, and you are not a waste, you are not a mistake, you are not useless. You were created in his image. So at the end of this story in Luke chapter 17, the story where Jesus heals these ten lepers, verses 15 through 19, only one of these ten comes back to thank him. The rest of them just go on about their business. They're obviously incredibly blessed that they've been healed. And yet one of them takes it upon himself to return to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, thank you for healing me of this crippling disease. You know, there will be times when we as Christians or we as a church treat people with respect, 
treat people with honor, treat people with care, and yet there's nothing in return for us. In fact, that may even get us taken advantage of at times, but we still do it. We still love them. We still serve them because they are created by God. In addition, a sermon like this or this whole idea of valuing all people, some people might take this and say, okay, now if we're going to value all people, if all people really matter, then we can't say anything offensive. We can't say anything at all that might offend them, because if we do that, then we are somehow saying that they aren't valuable anymore, that they aren't worth anything. We can't talk about things like sin. We can't talk about things like repentance. We can't take tough stands on controversial issues, because if we do that, people might not feel valuable anymore. But here's the thing. The reason we talk about sin, the reason we talk about repentance, the reason we talk about the gospel is exactly because people matter. If we don't talk about sin, if we don't talk about repentance, if we don't talk about the gospel because it makes us uncomfortable or because it makes us sound politically incorrect, that's showing that really those people don't matter that much to us because we would withhold the truth from them for the sake of our own comfort. We speak about these things openly and honestly because we believe people matter. And people are valuable. Therefore, the one thing we can do to show people worth the most is share Christ with them. Share what happened at the cross. Share the broken body and the shed blood. And if we don't share that with people, that's when it really comes out that we really don't value them all that much. We talk about these things because people are created in God's image. So my question is this. Who are the people right now that God is calling you to have a meal with? The people that otherwise you may never sit down and have a meal with them. Who are the people that God is calling you to have a conversation with? The people that you normally don't really engage. The people that don't really matter that much in your life. Who are the people that God is calling you right now to reach out and show them care and show them love and offer them healing? There are people in our lives who need it. There are people in our lives who do not feel valuable, who do not feel like they matter. And yet Genesis 127 calls us to show them that they do matter. They matter to God. Therefore, they'd really better matter to us. And we believe that here at Prairie View. And our prayer is that you will believe that too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible message that we see in these passages that we saw in Psalm 8. That, God, who are we that you care about us? Yet, you do. You created us in your image. God, that is a humbling, humbling experience and thing to think about. And God, I pray that that will change the way we view the people around us, that people are not just projects, they're not second-class citizens, they're not wastes, but rather people are created in your image. And that deserves respect, and that deserves reverence, and that deserves honor, and I pray that we will never forget that. I pray that it will change the way we view ourselves, that... Just like them, we're not wastes. We are not useless. 
that we are created by you. That too is incredibly humbling to think about. But God, I pray that as we go from this place, as we move on about our lives, I pray that this is the kind of thing that makes us that much more grateful for what your Son has done for us and that much more eager to share what your Son has done with the world around us. I pray that we will view people differently. We'll view them not just as commodities, but people who need to hear the gospel. God, we love you. We are thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your mercy. We're thankful for your patience and your kindness, your justice, God, every aspect. And we love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have questions about what it means to be created in God's image, because you are created in God's image, feel free to talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. If you are at a point in your life where maybe you're thinking that there may be real, really be something to this whole thing about the cross and thing about Jesus and broken body and shed blood, talk to one of them. They'd be happy to talk to you about that as well. If you have questions about our church, if you have anything you'd like to pray about, they're there for that too.